This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I was watching live coverage of President Biden in Israel. And there was this large room and he was meeting with community leaders, people who had lost loved ones, people who tried to help during the Hamas attacks. And everybody had to strain to hear. There was a, there was a boom mic there, but the president was talking very softly. And uh, the other people were talking very softly. So it was sort of strangely imminent, intimate. And it was very moving when you could make out the, the, what was being said or not make out what was being said, just, you know, Biden giving hugs to those who wanted them. And he said to one survivor of the attacks, God love you. And I could sort of tell by catching words here and there that he was talking, as he often does in times of tragedy, of the tragedy he has faced in his own life, uh, losing his first wife and a child in a car accident shortly after he was elected senator way back in 1972 and, of course, losing Bo Biden, his son, in 2015. Uh, Then he made some remarks and he said, he was quoting an Irish poet about hearts turning to stone. And he said, what I find remarkable from the conversations I've just had is, none of your hearts have turned to stone yet. He also said, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. So let's slide into story number one. The mere fact that President Biden is there is a sort of a morale boost. President who cared enough to come to Tel Aviv. Uh, Regardless of whether you like Joe Biden, don't like Joe Biden, don't like his policies, think he's too old to be reelected. You know, he's very good at this. He has decades of foreign policy experience. So did George H.W. Bush, for example. You know, sometimes we have presidents who have to learn the ropes uh, because they're former governors, for example. And sometimes we have presidents who know this particular part of the job. Now, Still, the, the trip will be judged a success or not based on what Biden comes away with. What, was there an advance agreement that will be announced with Bibi Netanyahu, with whom the president also met? And the thing that obviously has now threatened any progress from this trip is the explosion at the hospital, Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City, that Hamas says killed 500 people or more. And as a result of that, 
as you probably know, that the second part of the trip to Jordan to meet with King Abdullah, the leader of Egypt, and the leader of the Palestinian Authority was canceled. Now, the White House announced that it was canceling it after consultations with the king. Um, there's a second version, which is that it was the Arab leaders who canceled it. doesn't really matter. The point is, what was going to be a visit to the Middle East in which the president would at least listen to and talk to both sides uh, has now become just a trip to Israel. And what the president said when he first met Bibi is, from what I've seen, this was done by the other team, meaning not Israel. And later on, he clarified and said he was talking based on the data I was shown by my Defense Department. Nevertheless, and the media here are guilty of a bit of a rush to judgment. I mean, this horrible, tragic thing happens. You know, the most vulnerable, the wounded in this hospital, so many of them killed by this explosion. And when I heard about this, I, of course, assumed it was an Israeli rocket. And I said, this is terrible. How could Israel do this? That's no better than the tactics that Hamas used. But it turns out, as Israeli officials have said again and again, they did not target this hospital. Why would Israel want to blow up a hospital? What possible upside could there be to that? And, you know, people are looking now at, uh, was there a crater in the forensics? But Israeli intelligence, and I guess now confirmed by U.S. intelligence to the extent that these things can be confirmed, are saying it was a rocket fired near the hospital by a group called Islamic Jihad, was supposed to obviously target Israel. Instead, it misfired, and part of it fell into the courtyard of this hospital. So those are the facts as best we can ascertain them. And as soon as, you know, Israeli officials denied that they had done it, you know, the media accounts started to backtrack. Oh, it's in dispute. Well, we don't really know. And then we don't even know definitively right now. But, you know, when Hamas even talks about casualties, and look, there's just no question this was a horrible, awful mass tragedy. But why would we automatically believe when they say it was caused by Israel? But the damage has been done. And there are now demonstrations around the world. And there are many people who want to believe that Israel killed all these civilians, these sick and wounded Gaza residents in this hospital. And so I saw demonstrations in Lebanon. They're going to be all around the world. So it's almost like we then get to a point where the facts don't matter. Israel didn't do this, but we hate them anyway, so let's demonstrate and assume that Israel did do this. So this comes, of course, as, you know, there are severe shortages of water, people fighting over bread, medicine in Gaza, and 
now that the Israelis seem to be on their own in this question, in other words, Egypt has pulled out of any negotiation, and it, it, there's been all these premature announcements. Well, Egypt has agreed to let, and it hasn't happened yet, at least as I'm speaking to you. And it has to happen soon, or a lot more people are going to die. So, New York Times says this. President's trip and his broader handling of the war presented him with both political risks and a chance to pump energy into a re-election bid that Democratic voters have been slow to embrace. That's kind of a euphemism, that last phrase. Many Democratic voters in poll after poll, these are Democrats, say they don't want Joe Biden to win a second term. Biden's steadfast excuse me, support for Israel after the Hamas attack, the dominant position in Washington, has won him plaudits from some Republicans as well as Democrats. An international crisis, even with its grave geopolitical dangers, is relatively comfortable political terrain for a president with deep foreign policy experience. But at the same time, creeping anger within his party's left is threatening to grow as Israel pummels Gaza with airstrikes and moves toward a potential, see now they're not saying imminent, potential, ground invasion. So he has had to break with and stand up to the progressive wing of his own party. Now here is a conservative columnist for the Times, Brett Stevens, who is praising Joe Biden and in on all kinds of other issues is not a fan of this president. He says that with all the turmoil in the Middle East, Biden stepped into the vacuum. I have read, he says, probably half a dozen times now, his October 10th speech about the massacres. For its moral clarity, emotional force, and political directness, it deserves a place in any anthology of great American rhetoric. Without equivocation, without the mealy-mouthed cliches and evasions that typified so many institutional statements about the assault, the president said what Jews desperately needed to hear. And I, I thought it was the best speech of Biden's presidency. Uh, he, uh, we also need Biden's leadership given the moral void on the right. I spent years of Donald Trump's presidency being hectored by a certain type of Jewish conservative who insisted that Israel never had a better friend in the White House. Today... Trump takes a dimmer view of Netanyahu, less because of his failed performance than because he can't forgive the prime minister for calling Biden in 2020 to congratulate him on his victory. By the way, what choice did Bibi have? He has to work with the American president, whoever that is. And they've had a rocky relationship. It's a brave trip, says Brett Stevens, even for a president with his vast security apparatus, given that Hamas's rockets continue to fall indiscriminately on Israel and a second front with Hezbollah could open at any time. He is going almost surely to do what he does best, console the bereaved and bereft, give coverage to those in fear. This is statesmanship in the teeth of far-left opposition and incessant right-wing criticism. It's the president's finest hour. Well, that is quite a tribute coming from a very smart guy on the right. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Number two, you know, I sort of alluded to this a moment ago. Um, we were all expecting, you know, like any day, particularly after the weekend, for the ground invasion by ground, air, and sea that Netanyahu had publicly promised um, was coming. That's the reason Israel strongly urged, and I guess about a half million Palestinians have heeded these warnings to move out of North Gaza because that's where the attack will be and to migrate to the southern part of the Strip. Well, here's the Jerusalem Post saying, you know, it seemed crystal clear this was going to happen Friday or Saturday. Uh, Sources have told the paper that one factor has been a growing concern that Hezbollah is waiting for the moment that most Israeli defense force Uh, Ground forces are committing to Gaza to open a full front with the IDF in the north. In this narrative, the fact that Hezbollah did not engage at the start of the war and has kept its attacks on Israel at a fairly low threshold does not prove that it is deterred, but is part of an elaborate fake-out to lure the IDF into a false sense of security. this This makes the most sense, even though it's a sort of reported theory and based on sources, than anything else that I've seen. As fodder for such suspicions, sources would note that Israeli intelligence and the political echelon must have a new level of humility about their assessments of enemy intentions after missing the boat on Hamas in the south. This will not stop the IDF from invading Gaza, but it may have caused a delay to double-check signs regarding Hezbollah's intention. Also, a deepening recognition in the IDF that the military in Israel has not done anything like this in decades, and that rushing in unprepared, simply to satisfy the population's thirst for retribution, could be a large mistake. A number of other factors could be U.S. pressure to avoid civilian casualties, domestic concerns about Israeli hostages in Gaza, and giving more time for Palestinians to evacuate. This was written uh, just before the Biden trip was announced. Also, the Jerusalem Post has confirmed from many sources that no one has yet decided what will happen to Gaza after the IDF will supposedly topple Hamas's rule. Uh, All these factors have left top Israeli officials huffing and puffing for new superlatives about what they will do to Hamas while basically having done very little new for about a week. All right, let's turn to domestic politics here. The speaker's race. Jim Jordan losing the vote yesterday. Vote he hoped to win or a vote he hoped to have a stronger showing in. Now, to be fair to the Judiciary Committee chairman, he changed a lot of minds. You know, he in that closed-door caucus. And I can't even understand after Steve Scalise didn't get 
the speakership, and now Jim Jordan failed on the initial round, why do they even have these closed-door votes if they're not going to close ranks behind whoever has the most support within the House Republican Caucus? Jordan was able to change a lot of minds. He only got 124 votes in that secret ballot. And he ended up losing 20 Republicans on the floor vote. He could only afford to lose three. So it was worse than the Jordan team expected. 17 votes short now. And here's some reporting from Politico. One piece says, as the GOP has drifted steadily right, the ranks of the moderates have thinned and their crucial role in making Congress work has become increasingly threatened. That flexibility, in other words, willingness to do what lawmakers are supposed to do, and that is work with the other side in order to achieve things. Like, isn't that usually the goal of why we elect politicians? To do something, to get things done, and not to collapse in endless rounds of internal squabbling? I would think so. So they've given themselves, or they've earned themselves, a sneering nickname, squishes. That used to apply to Republicans who were, weren't completely on board with whatever the GOP orthodoxy of the day was. They were too squishy to fully support it. But now, in this context, it's not really about policy at all. It's just about, do you want to make government work or not? So when Jordan, godfather of the conservative hardliners, won the nomination, you'd be forgiven if you expected them to, you know, squish once again. As one GOPA put it to NBC, either he gets it, or the moderates, for the first time ever, grow a spine. Turns out the moderates are vertebrates, after all says this political piece. One top aide to a member who's opposing Jordan quoted as saying, the adults were fed up. They knew they had to act now or never. And this sort of centrist rebellion, if you want to call it that, has backed Jordan into a corner. And that the pressure campaign done through conservative media and other tactics um, seems to have backfired. Now, as evidence of that, listen to this. The wife of one congressman opposing Jordan, Don Bacon, Republican of Nebraska, his wife received an anonymous text or text messages and emails warning her husband to back Jordan's speakership before the vote yesterday. Bacon told Politico, Jim's been nice one-on-one, but his broader team has been playing hardball. He was one of the 20 who voted against Jim. So Olivia Beavers of Politico posted screenshots of these text messages from this anonymous sender or senders. Why is your husband causing chaos by not supporting Jim Jordan? I thought he was a team player. And Mrs. Bacon responded, who is this? Then came a second message. Your husband will not hold any political office ever again. What a disappointment and failure he is. 
Now, if you're trying to win over somebody who, for whatever set of reasons, thinks you're too conservative, thinks you're too much of a hothead, uh, just disagrees with you on all kinds of issues, doesn't think you'd be a good speaker, is this the best way to go about it? Anonymous text to the guy's wife? I mean, who thought this was brilliant? Who thought this would be so intimidating that, that Don Bacon, that the congressman would just roll over and vote for Jordan? If anything, especially if, you know, pulling his wife into this, it probably deepened his determination to vote against Jordan. And one other factor here, and that is Jordan's feud with Steve Scalise, who at a certain point thought he was going to be the next speaker. So they had a meeting after Scalise pulled out. And Jordan asked for Scalise's help. And Scalise declined. The meeting did not go well. So according to this unnamed source, again being quoted by Politico, um, Jordan also hit Scalise for failing to be a, quote, team player. Interesting, because that's the same phrase that was used in the anonymous text to Bacon's wife. Um, and so that ticked off Scalise's allies because it was, of course, Jordan's supporters who had blocked Steve Scalise from getting the gavel. However, a second source familiar with that meeting between the two of them said that's bull. Steve has been the only candidate for speaker who said he would publicly support the nominee and he has and still will. Both Scalise and Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted two weeks ago, voted for Jordan. But some of their allies voted for them. Of the 20 no votes, I think 13 went either to Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise. So that is the, the challenge, the difficulty that has faced Jordan. And I have a column on this today on Fox, and I also say... The fact that Jim Jordan has even come within 20 votes of being the next House Speaker says a lot about the direction of the Republican Party. Not because I'm anti-Jordan, but because he's extremely conservative. He is a fiery lawmaker who tends to dominate at hearings. And because he is the guy out front, he's the point man, leading this impeachment inquiry against President Biden, which some Republican moderates think doesn't have enough of a foundation and was not approved by the full House, even though McCarthy caved to conservative pressure after saying that, well, of course, we wouldn't undertake any inquiry without a vote by the full House. Remember that? And also... Jordan is part of the faction, you know, Matt Gates and many other hardliners who um, seem more interested in blocking things than getting things done. I mean, their worst critics would say they're not interested in governing. So when you go to Kevin McCarthy, in effect, bailing out the party and the country by first of all reaching a debt ceiling deal 
with Biden back in the spring, which otherwise could have caused a government default, which would have been catastrophic. And then more recently, having reached that agreement and then the Jordans and Gateses of the world say, oh, no, no, this doesn't cut spending enough. We're not going to go along with this. I mean, keep in mind, Democratic White House, Democratic-controlled Senate. And so that brought the country to a very brink of a government shutdown, but McCarthy managed to get the stopgap measure. And, and as a third point, that agreement runs out in less than a month. So I don't know what happens if there's no speaker. Hard to imagine there'd be no speaker for another month. But the point is that, and this is just a statement of fact, I'm not pro-Jordan, I'm not anti-Jordan. I mean, in fact, the press would probably love to see Speaker Jordan because, you know, given his rhetoric and his style, he'd be very entertaining. But how is he going to govern without some cooperation with the Democrats? Would he be given more leeway, a little more breathing room by other Republicans, by the conservative Republicans, I should say, because he's seen as one of them? Or would we be stuck in the same old gridlock? I mean, meanwhile, you know, I, I led with the war, as I have done just about every day since the attacks by Hamas, Congress can't pass additional military aid to the embattled state of Israel. What Biden wants to do, once the House is functioning again, is to have a package deal. More aid to Ukraine, which a number of Republicans oppose, and much-needed aid to Israel, and maybe even adding on more money for border security, and more money for the arming of Taiwan against the possible Chinese attack. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, let's move on to number four, which involves Donald Trump. He was back at the uh, Manhattan courthouse yesterday, came out and spoke to reporters several times. This is the civil suit by the New York Attorney General. And once again, he was talking about Mar-a-Lago and how it's worth a billion and a half dollars or more rather than the 18 million that the judge accepted. Of course, what the judge was doing was accepting an assessment, which may be wildly off. I mean, there's no way, if you've ever seen it up close, that you would say that's worth $18 million. It's worth far, far more. But of course, while the former president has shrewdly made Mar-a-Lago sort of the symbol of why this is a bad case, remember, he's already been found guilty by the judge, so really we're just going into what the appropriate punishment will be, although Trump is appealing, as of course he would. Um, there are many other properties, including his own apartment in Trump Tower and several landmark apartment buildings in Manhattan and elsewhere where he has been accused of inflating real estate values in order to get loans from banks and, and get places insured. But as Trump has said again and again, all the banks got repaid. There's no victims here. In any event, 
There's also the partial gag order. That's not in this case. That is in the federal case, the January 6th related case. But before we get to that, he's railing against Judge Arthur Ngoron in the real estate case. He ruled against me. He ruled fraud. I mean, he said fraud. They are fraudulent people because they ruled that the house was worth 18. They put it down, it was worth $18 million. And it's worth maybe close to 100 times that amount. And then in what I think was a reference to the gag order in the federal case, Trump says, that's all coming out of the Department of Justice. It's all set up by Biden and his thugs that he's surrounded with to try to sneak out an election victory that he's not entitled to win because he's been the worst president in the history of our country. Well, he has every right as a candidate to attack Joe Biden in whatever terms he wants. But I have to add, there is no evidence that President Biden personally told DOJ, told Merrick Garland um, to bring any of these cases. Indeed, that would blow up in his face. It would make the entire thing look like a nasty partisan exercise, which, of course, Trump and his most loyal MAGA followers absolutely believe. But to pin this on the president personally seems to me to be totally unfair. Now, if you want to say, look, uh, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, the district attorney in Manhattan, they're elected Democrats, you can make that case. But depending on Biden, it just, you know, it's based on an assumption that, as far as I can see, has no underlying evidence. And by the way, new poll just came out from uh, NPR and Marist College, general election poll, obviously more than a year away. Biden, 49 percent, gain of three. Trump, 46 percent. So that you know, there's been all these polls showing Trump leading by one, two, three points, or they're tired, tied, excuse me. And this one has Biden, you know, maybe as a result of recent events, creeping up a little bit, but it's still pretty close to margin of error. It's a tight race, a very tight race. And probably will remain that way if Trump gets the nomination, which he's in an overwhelmingly strong position to do so. But the more interesting part of this poll is the second piece with Robert Kennedy Jr. as an independent, Biden 44%, Trump 37%, Kennedy 16%. Well, first of all, I don't think RFK is going to win 16%, but regardless, this shows what many had suspected, which is many of RFK's fans are on the Republican side. He would actually, at least according to this one snapshot, cost Trump more support than Biden. Number five, I love this piece by Elizabeth Spires. I am neither Jewish nor Palestinian, and none of my six regular gigs have anything to do with foreign policy. But the other day I opened Twitter to find people I don't know demanding that I make a public statement about what's happening in the Middle East. It seemed that most of the people on social media had made a statement, including various corporate brands, celebrities, lifestyle influencers, American Eagle's chief marketing officer, Praying for Israel, Justin Bieber. And I saw lots of random citizens being told that if they didn't speak out, they too would have blood on their hands. 
People speaking from both the right and the left seem to attribute my silence to depraved indifference to human suffering. Though they were divided on which humans were suffering. As it happens, I have been dealing with shingles and the depression I struggle with periodically. I was tired and overwhelmed, as are a great many other people. But the voices yelling at me and anyone who failed to post seemed to believe that not making a statement was itself a statement and an immoral one. There's a facile version of taking a stand on social media that generates righteous backpatting but reduces complex issues to a simple yes or no, you think? Writing in the New York Times op-ed, she says, taking simplistic stands can also lead to twisting words and deeply unserious thinking that fuels further hostilities. When institutions offered statements that expressed sorrow for the loss of both Israeli and Palestinian lives, some constituents and customers demanded a revision that explicitly condemned their preferred villain. If the voices stayed silent, it was newsworthy. Six days after Hamas's horrific terror attacks on Israel, said Women's Wear Daily, many major players in the beauty and overall fashion industry have remained largely silent in support of victims on both sides of the conflict. Do we really need to hear from L'Oreal or LVMH or Louis Vuitton? So she does go on to say that, yes, I do have views on this, and I am very, very sympathetic to Israel for the horrible Hamas atrocities, but also said, of course, she has some sympathy for innocent Palestinians who are dying. But this idea, says Elizabeth Spires, that everybody needs to speak all the time. I've run into this on occasion. Maybe I was out for the afternoon and something happened and I hadn't posted on it. I hadn't tweeted. I hadn't Facebooked. I hadn't threaded. How dare I? This must mean that somebody's telling me not to talk or you just all these conspiracy theories. And sometimes I don't tweet or post because I haven't made up my mind yet. I don't mean in the context of this war. Everybody knows what I think about that. You know, it's an issue, a new issue, and I want to look into it and I don't want to sound stupid. And I want to sort of see what the nuances are. I want to do research. I want to think. That's no longer okay, is what Elizabeth Spires is saying. You're not allowed that luxury anymore. You must take a stand on everything. If not, we'll just assume you're either a blithering idiot or you don't care about human suffering. I think that's a very powerful column that transcends the Israel-Hamas war. And just before we go, Elon Musk is now charging for Twitter. Well, when I saw the headline, I said, holy cow, this is it. He's going to destroy the place. Well, so far, it's just New Zealand and Philippines. And what Musk says is that this is really aimed at bots. So what he's charging new users, if you already have a Twitter account or have for years, you're not affected by this. And right now, if you don't live in those two countries, you're not affected. He will charge $1 a year for you to tweet, reply, quote, repost. You can still look at Twitter, but unless you pay the $1. So why $1? Because he wants to make sure that there are human beings behind these accounts and not just bots being run by who knows who. So 
I think this is a slippery slope, and ultimately Musk wants to charge everybody, not just new users, not just residents of a, a couple of countries, and probably more than a dollar to use Twitter. And I do think that would be the beginning of the end of Twitter's value as a place where a national conversation takes place. But right now, it's just a buck. And this is a breaking news update. Jim Jordan has lost the second round of voting, unable to win over enough Republicans to make him the Speaker of the House. Now, this is not surprising or shocking. Jordan's own people were putting out the word that he didn't expect to win the second round. It's not clear how many more rounds this might go or whether Jordan may reach the inevitable conclusion that he can't get to losing just three or four Republican votes, which is the only margin he has, which is the only margin Steve Scalise had, which is the only margin that Kevin McCarthy had. I am picking up uh, growing media chatter about, in the face of this embarrassment, two weeks now without a House Speaker, the Republicans apparently in disarray, at least coming up with a temporary Band-Aid, which would be to empower the acting Speaker pro tempore, Patrick McHenry, with enough power so that the House could get back to business, maybe for 30 days, maybe even for 60 days, vote on aid to Israel, vote on aid to Ukraine, and so forth. But right now, the Republicans' agony and obvious inability to strike any kind of note of unity and elect a Speaker of the House remains a huge problem for the GOP. Hey, thanks for coming along for the ride. Really appreciate your time. Because time is the most valuable resource we all have. Yeah, there's money, but there's time too. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.